0: The stage was set really well uh, for what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about worship and just a life of worship, a culture of worship this morning. Um, If you are, this was a passage that when, you know, we've been going through the book of James all through the summer, and when you get to this passage, it's actually really heavy. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's just a really heavy passage. So if this is... Uh, your first time in church ever, if this is one of your first times or you haven't been in a long time, um, not all sermons are like this, but today like it's going to be pretty heavy because of the nature of this passage. James has been calling these guys that he's been talking to brothers and sisters the whole time. He's like, we're family, we're brothers, we're sisters. We're all in this together. And then he just switched the nomenclature. Now he's calling them adulterers. He's calling them sinners. He's calling them double-minded. And it's just in these few verses. And then as Matthew read right after that, he switches back to brothers and sisters. And so he's like, like sometimes you have your family and or in your family, uh, when you're growing up, sometimes your parents had to set you aside and really have like, a, a talk with you. Right. Um, I did that with my daughter this morning after she got clotheslined by the rope she wasn't paying attention and then she bled all over my shirt and <laughs> she uh, uh and just just like say, "Hey, sweetie, you got to pay attention, right? Sometimes you have to do that." And James is doing that with the family. He's saying, "Okay, here we go. Now, you guys, you need to wake up." And this is the address he's giving them. So James has been really great, you know, and then now we get to this point. If you read through the whole book, you get to this section and it just changes. The tone changes, the language changes, and James is trying to trying to awaken something in them this morning so um, yeah life of life of worship culture of worship when I when my family started going to church I was around 10 or 11 um, and uh, I had no we didn't really know my mom was Buddhist my dad came from an agnostic atheistic background so no religion no nothing religious in the home until we started going to church uh... when i was 10 or 11 and so i had no idea what the pastor did you know i mean i think for most of you guys some of you guys have been in church for a while you probably have no idea what what Dan and i do on a daily basis you think we work one day a week and this is, or one hour a week and this is like the hour <laughs> right here this is my job um... and i kind of thought that growing up like I, I just had no idea what what the guy did what these guys did during the week um and uh i realized uh, later on as i asked my pastor that you know this isn't the job like this isn't work this isn't work for me this is the consummation of a week of preparation and worship and we get to do this we get to gather corporately together and we get to praise god we get to read his scriptures we get to hear what god is saying to us and we get to do that together. Like this is the the beauty of worship. We're doing it together here. And so this is just like the icing on the cake. Like we're we're making the cake all week, counseling people, networking with organizations, um, doing all kinds of other other stuff, fundraising and you know, all, all kinds of other stuff that goes on during the week. And this is just the the fun part. This is fun. So um and I say that because It's not only the consummation of a pastor's work during the week, but this should be the consummation of your week as well. Like, this should be the consummation of a life of worship that's lived out during the week. And then now you get to come with, come together with the body of Christ and we get to do that all together. And so, one of the issues is, um, we, we talk about worship and we've segregated it to, an hour or an hour and a half or 30 minutes on one particular day, a Sunday morning. And what James is getting at here is we live a life of worship. God has actually created us for this life. He's created us for a life of worship, okay? And James makes it clear that we get to choose what our life worships. So back in the back in Genesis 2.15... God says He's put Adam and Eve in the garden, and if you open your your, your Bible here, it'll say um, to to work it and to keep it, which is actually not a very good translation. Um, there's there's a strong strong argument for the translation to be to worship and obey. So God puts Adam and Eve in the garden not to work, but actually to worship and to obey. He's created us for this life of worship. Okay, and James is saying. Okay, we have that. Now what do we do with our lives? What are we worshiping? And he gives us two options here. And this is going back to verse 4. Matthew didn't read that this morning because um, we actually talked about it last week, but I'm going to go into last week and bring it to this week. And so in verse 4 of chapter 4, it says this. It says, you adulterous people. So that's pretty bad. Um, he's just been calling them brothers and sisters. And now he's like, you, you guys are adulterers. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Like that's, this is really strong language. Enmity is a word that isn't used very much in the scriptures. The first time it's used is when Adam and Eve sin in the garden and enmity comes between man and woman. And then he gives a Prophecy. God gives a prophecy after that. He says, what's happened is now there's enmity between the man and the woman. There's division. There's strife. There's quarrels. There's anger. There's jealousy. There's rage. All these things um, contribute to enmity. But he says, Jesus is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. And he'll crush that enmity. And then if you read Ephesians, Paul says, God has made peace between man and woman, between man and man, woman and woman and between man and God, and woman and God. And so uh, when James says this word, he's like giving us all this biblical history that is that has started back in Genesis. And he says, God's created you for this life, Genesis 2. Genesis 3 happened, and when you follow the world, when you worship the world, it's enmity against God. Okay, It pits you against God. And he says it makes you an enemy of God, not a friend of God, an enemy of God. And so James is saying we either worship God and we're friends of God or we worship the world and we're friends of the world. There's no other option, okay? God or the world. He makes it pretty black and white there. And then in verse 5 it says, or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Spirit says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he's made to dwell in us? And he makes it clear that God longs, for you. This word the spirit in there is actually not referring to the spirit of God in us. It's referring to the human spirit in us. God has put a spirit in us. Back in Genesis, he breathed the the breath of life into us. And he breathed the spirit of life into us. And so James, you can it's it's clear here. He's actually reading Genesis and, and talking about this to the people here. And he says the human spirit that's in you, that God's put in you, the spirit of worship, the spirit that desires to worship something, because you're worshiping something this morning. That's clear, okay? You're worshiping something this morning, and James is trying to help us discern what we're worshiping, God or the world. And he says, God yearns for that spirit. He's made it actually for him, for you to worship him. What do you yearn jealously for? God is yearning jealously for you. What do you yearn jealously for? Um, growing up, or a large part of my life, I've yearned jealously for success, and um, that that comes in the form of ambition and striving and trying to attain goals not that not that ambition and goals are bad, but when my my idol is success, I'm trying to attain that above anything else well. Um, bad things happen. And so, I mean, you can see this early on, like, I mean, when I first became a believer, 11 years old, 10 years old, um, uh, I started praying for Super, Spider-Man powers. (laughs) Because I wanted, like, to be, like, awesome and successful, and I wanted to be, like, above everybody else, and I wanted to, to, um, just stand out, you know, and, and stick out. So, uh, I don't know, I was like, well, if, God can do anything, and I believe in this God. I'll just pray for Spider-Man powers, like that I can climb walls, and I can save people, and I can shoot web out of my wrists. And then I was like, that's kind of gross, so <laughs> I changed to Batman. Um, but And then you can see this all, like, if you, if you look at my life, um, just, just trying to be successful in, in whatever way, like I was a class clown. And so I'd try to be the funniest person in in the class. Or then I started, I was like, well, that's not working. So, um, well, it was working, and that was the problem. (laughs) Um, So then i will try to be the smartest guy in class. i will try to be the smartest person. So I was valedictorian, and I got academic scholarships, and I tried to go into business because that was going to make me money, and I was going to be successful, and we went into business, and we got business degrees, and went into advertising and tried to make money and all these things. You can look at my life, and it's all this pursuit of, of uh, success. But finally, I gave this yearning, which I didn't really recognize it, right, in the midst of it. I, I just thought, you know, I'm, I, was, I was a solid Christian, but I'm still trying to live my life for God. Um, and it's okay if I want success, Right? Um, and it is it is okay. The problem with me was success was overshadowing everything else. It was detracting from my relationship with others, detracting from my relationship with God. And God finally redeemed that in my life, redeemed that ambition, redeemed that desire for success. And it wasn't by calling me into the ministry. Um, it was actually by helping me realize and assuring me of my identity and destiny in Christ. And my success isn't dependent on what I do in this life, but it's dependent on who I am in Christ. And all I need to do is live in that. And that's when I actually surrendered into the ministry, and um, that brought me here. <laughs> so there's a whole other story after that. But what do you yearn jealously for? Is it success? You might, think, you might think there's nothing. You might say, oh, well, there's nothing really I, I, um, I pursue like that. But there's always something that you pursue more than other things. There's something your life is founded on if it's not founded on your identity in Christ. It could be your career, your family, relationships, money, your mental illness, your physical ailments, the approval of others, someone to notice you, I mean, you might be striving for just being right all the time. I don't know what it is for you. You can fill in the blank. But what if we made a switch and what we yearned jealously for was God instead of that's something that's actually never going to satisfy us? And see, the problem is what we've done is we've, we've falsely dichotomized the spiritual and the physical, or the spiritual and the emotional, or the spiritual and the mental. We put the spiritual over here in a box, and we said, what we do here doesn't really have anything to do with what we do over here. This is here Sunday morning when I'm around Christians. This is here when I'm at work and with everybody else. And this is actually like a philosophical distinction and thing that's been handed down to us like way back, Plato, Aristotle, uh, Descartes championed it in dualism in the 1600s. But the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians actually speaks against this. He says, actually, the physical and the spiritual always affect each other. And Jesus speaks to this. He says, love the Lord your God with everything you are. Mind, soul, strength, everything. You know, you're, it's holistic. And so this this um, false dichotomy that we've created isn't biblical, The Bible actually says that these things affect one another. And so if that's the case, then everything we do during the week, physical, what we eat, what we drink, mental, what we watch on TV, what music we listen to, emotional, um, all these things contribute to our lifestyle of worship, to our life of worship, to what we worship. Okay, there's a really easy test we can do, um, to, to determine what you worship in your life. And all you need to do is say, what do I spend most of my time doing? That's going to tell you what you worship. What do you spend most of your time doing? And now none of you are going to say, well, I spend most of my time praying. And that's okay. (laughs) That doesn't mean that you don't worship God, that you don't have a life of worship devoted to God, um, but what do you spend most of your time doing is it is it things that surround uh things that will benefit you and that God has put uh that God has put in your life or is it things that the world has put in your life and that actually detract from you The good news is verse 6 where Matthew started says but he God gives more grace Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble Paul says in Romans 5:20 that where sin increases, grace actually abounds even more. Like, it's such a beautiful thing. So, this isn't about condemnation. No matter where you are, God's grace is greater than anything else. It's greater than our sin. It's greater than what's detracting from our worship of him. And so, remember that grace his grace is sufficient, it's greater, it's, it's going to overcome. And he says in verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil. So submit yourselves, humble yourselves, seek God, worship God. And he says when you do that, the devil is resisted. So just living a life of worship devoted to God resists the world, resists the devil, like the scriptures use this word a lot. It's, we stand firm. We are set against the devil. We stand firm against. And it says that when that happens, the world, the devil, flees. Like he runs away. When we're just standing against him. And God, the the subsequent consequences, God draws near. And this isn't some abstract thing. We think, we, we read this passage, and we're like, oh, draw, draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. Um, this isn't like some abstract thing where where God is this you know ethereal substance and and uh, you know we we may be able to sense He's here or not. This is actually when when James mentions this, it's a spatial verb. It means that we can feel God's presence physically in our space. I don't know if you felt that this morning. I did. I felt God here like in my space like he was invading my privacy (laughs) and it was amazing and you can feel that when you draw near to god like you feel god's presence that tangibly okay this can be through other believers it can be in corporate worship it could just be the spirit invading your space okay but the question is well how do we how do we do this how do we draw near to god is it just through singing good songs? Is it through like powerful music? Is it through reading your Bible? Is it through like hanging out with other Christians? Like how how do we do this? James gives two 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 things we do here. First one he says is cleanse your hands. And he calls us sinners. He says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Second thing, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So he says, You guys are sinners. You need to do something about it. You guys are double-minded. You need to do something about it. He's already used this word, uh, double-minded in, in chapter one, verse eight. And, and he's saying, before he was saying, you're wavering between belief and unbelief. Now he's saying, you're wavering between worshiping the world and worshiping God. And you're just going back and forth. And that is not how we should be living. He says, you're, you're just, you're just moving from one, one side to the other. That's double-mindedness. And so, let's, let's talk about the first one. Um, this is kind of, when he says cleanse your hands, this this word is just talking about like a ceremonial cleansing. He doesn't, he's not literally telling us to go wash our hands, right? I mean, we all can figure that out. He's not telling us to go wash our hands and, and we're good. Um, it's a ceremonial symbolic thing. Many religions have this. When we're in Tokyo in May, we're entering into uh, Meiji Shrine. Uh, it's a Shinto temple, uh, one of the biggest ones in Tokyo. And they have this like, really beautiful, cool place where you do this ceremonial ritual where you kind of you wash your right hand first or your left hand, something like that. And you, you do it in this order. And um, and that's supposed to be symbolic of you cleansing yourself before you go into the temple. Um, it was funny because Kelly actually washed her hands into the dirty, into the clean water. And I'm like, don't wash your You're supposed to do it over here in this trough. She put her hands over the clean water. Um... I think she just ruined the whole, the whole vibe. Uh, and so it's, it's just symbolic. Like, like Muslims, before they enter a mosque, they, they do something called, called wudu. And they, they clean everything from the, from the neck up, the hands. They start off with the hands. They wash their hands three times. Um, I think they go with the mouth after, I think there's ten steps. They go with their mouth afterwards. They swish out three times in their mouth. And then, um, I think they do their arms up to their elbows after that. And then, you know, they, they do everything face, ears. And, and head. And it's all this, this ritual to, to show that they are cleansing themselves symbolically by coming into, uh, the, this, this mosque. Judaism has cleansing rituals. Christianity has, uh, a cleansing ritual. Does anybody know what that is? Baptism. Baptism is, is this ritual that's, that's showing and it's pointing to a reality that's happened, and that's what all these things are. They're they're symbolic, they're symbols. Something does happen in them, of course. Something spiritual takes place, but they're pointing to something in a reality that's that's happened. And so, like with baptism, it's it's uh, a cleanse. It's, it doesn't cleanse our sin, but it's signif- it's uh, signifying that we have been cleansed of our sin. Right? The water doesn't actually do anything. Just like uh, when we went in the Shinto shrine, like don't actually think that water does anything. It's just coming from the tap somewhere. I mean, we're just we're just cleaning our hands off as a symbol, uh, a representative. So when James says here, cleanse your hands, he's saying, you have blood on your hands, and you need to do something about it. You guys are sinners. You have lust on your hands. You have anger on your hands. You have pornography on your hands. You have grudges on your hands you have lying on your hands you have stealing on your hands you have gossip on your hands and you need to cleanse yourself of those things and then he says purify your hearts remove the contaminants from your hearts basically is what he's saying remove something's contaminating your heart and your heart in the scriptures isn't just the seat of emotion the heart represents your will, uh, emotion. It represents everything. The heart, when the heart is used in the scriptures, it's the fullness of your being. And so he says, there's something that's contaminating you. There's things that are in you that are contaminating who you're supposed to be. They're contaminating your identity in Christ. They're taking away from that. And you need to purify your hearts. You guys remember the Fukushima disaster, right? That happened in 2011. For us, it seems like we don't even think about it anymore, right? That happened like four years ago. We don't even think about it. But guess what? There's still like megatons of radiation in the Pacific Ocean. Like Japan, where where that happened, like they can't move back. People can't move back to their homes. Everything's contaminated. The fish in the Pacific are contaminated. Who knows? We may, I don't know. We may be eating it. Who knows? Um, like it's it's pretty crazy. It's contaminated a large part of the world. And actually, last year was when um, the contamination peaked, and it reached the the west coast. And so, and then it's supposed to go from the west coast all the way around in the in the subsequent years. And this is like this is a, a huge deal. Um, and the problem with contaminants is that they're very hard to remove. Like, it's very hard to go in the Pacific Ocean and remove the the cesium or the, the other radi- forms of radiation. Because when you do that, you have to kill the fish. You have to kill the wildlife. You have to... Um, you can't boil the water. They thought you could boil the water and it would reduce the radiation, but it actually concentrates it. Um, so it's... it's it's hard to remove it. Same thing with contaminations in our lives. They're hard to remove. Like, they've become part of us. They've become part of who we are. And I don't know what's contaminating your life, um, but most of the time it takes the form of something that we think we need. Something that we think we rely on and that we need. That could be something... As simple as you need Starbucks every day, my next door neighbor goes four times a day. Um, they need Starbucks every day, uh, and maybe that's contaminating your finances. Maybe that's contaminating your, or it is contaminating your brain <laughs> and your body. Um, but that's something that that's pretty harmless, right? We don't we don't really think about the consequences of it, um, or it could be. Uh, Maybe you need to watch this show because everyone's watching it. Or you need to listen to that music because everybody listens to it. Or you need to go to that bar because that's like the best bar. Um, Or you need to read that magazine. You need to follow this person. Or you fill in the blank. You need this. These things are, there's different things that are contaminating your life. But what if we actually purified our hearts so that we were dependent on God for everything? What if instead of depending on these, these things that we think we need, we depend on what the Bible says we do need? And you see, when we live a life of worship to God, we begin to see the contaminants in our lives. And that's what James is getting at. He's saying it's only in a life of worship that you will see what you need to purify in your life, what you need to cut off, what you need to kick out. And it's then that you can live a life of worship to God. Otherwise, you're living a life of worship to the world, and you're a friend of the world. And you're an enemy of God. And this is key here. He says in verse nine, he says, Be wretched. And it's kind of it, it kind of goes against the rest the rest of the scriptures talk about how we have joy in Christ, and you know we don't have to mourn as those who don't have hope. But here he says, Be wretched, suffer misery, be miserable, mourn, weep, grieve, cry over your sin. Let your laughter because your laughter is over sin. That's that's the context of this. He's saying, you guys are having fun in sin. You guys are laughing over it. It's fun for you. You don't think about the consequences. You just do what you do. And you don't think about how it hurts others or hurts yourself or hurts your relationship with the Father. And he says, you guys are laughing about it. But let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He says, your eyes should be downcast. This is what the word gloom is talking about. Like, instead of... Laughing with your heads back, your eyes should be downcast because you're ashamed of what you're doing. And the reason we should suffer this misery over our sin, the reason we should grieve and cry and experience gloom is because that's what Christ experienced on our behalf on the cross. And that's what Jesus did for us. He took all of that on him and he sacrificed it. He sacrificed himself. He took on that curse, that weight, and he died for us in our place so that we could have joy. And so when we laugh in our sin, we're laughing at Christ's sacrifice, he's saying. But when we are dejected about our sin, when we uh, have misery over it, when we suffer this misery, we're, we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. Guys, God is, I think God's tired of us finding pleasure in our sin. We were at um, we were at Copacabana Friday night. The interns that we had this summer took us out to uh, this Brazilian, it's a Brazilian steakhouse. If you guys have never been to a Brazilian steakhouse, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> they just come by your table with like, skewers of meat and they just give them to you. And it's pretty amazing when they pay for you, when you get paid for and we don't have to pay. <laughs> um, like they just come by and you just eat like crazy. Like I didn't eat all day that Friday until that moment and I ate like 16 meals probably in one sitting. I mean, they just come by and they they bring skewers of like sirloin and filet. Anyways, it's it's all this it's all this stuff. It's probably One of the worst meals I've had in a long time. (laughs) Because it was all meat. Um, But it was the best meal. Um, But that's how we, that's how we are with our sin. There's no shame anymore. That's what gets me about, about our sin these days. Is, it's not that there's more sin, guys. It's not like we have more sin in the world. I think sin's always been there from the beginning. It's, we've always rebelled against God. It's that we're just not ashamed of it anymore. You know, you walk at Dundas Square and you see everything there. You walk uh, it, even in our neighborhood and you see stuff there. I mean, it's and people are okay with it. People are out there in the daylight, whereas a lot of things like this just happen at night. And we're just not ashamed of it anymore. We're like, yeah, here comes a skewer of pornography. Yep, I want that. Oh, do you guys have any more um, anger over there? Yep, I'll, I'll take that. I was at Canadian Tire with Emerson the other day, and I heard a, a mom yelling at her 8-year-old daughter, um, just cussing at her like crazy. That just broke my heart. I'm like, why is she talking to her 8-year-old like that? Um, and it wasn't even the 8-year-old's fault. Like, I saw what led up to it. The mom was just angry. No shame. She's okay with um, cussing out her kid in public in front of everybody. I wanted to say something to her. Um, I didn't think it would be beneficial. <laughs> um, we're, we're just like Copacabana. Like, bring, keep on bringing on the skewers of meat. There's no shame. We don't care. And James is saying, we need to be miserable. I'm like We should be dejected. But remember, this is also in the context of saying, you know what? God's grace is greater than your sin. When you sin, guess what? God's grace abounds. And Paul says, does that mean we should keep on sinning? He's like, well, by no means. That's ridiculous logic, he says. Um, except be an abuse of God's grace. But when we do sin, God's grace is there to rescue us. That's the, that's the beautiful thing. But then James finishes, he says, and this is the last verse I'm going to talk about today, um, verse 10. It forms this kind of inclusivity. He starts off with this. He says, Humble yourself before the Lord. And he says it again in verse 10. And then he adds this. He says, When you do that, he'll exalt you. When you live a life of worship to God, he'll exalt you to a high position. And he says, When you live a life of worship, this will be against the enemy, against the world, against the devil. And Ephesians 6 says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, against authorities, against the principalities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. Do you guys realize that? Like We live in darkness. The scriptures say that if you're in Christ, you are light. But it also says that we live in a darkness. We live in a dark world. We live in this present darkness is what Ephesians says. He says, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Paul has just finished identifying the prince and power of the air as the devil in Ephesians 2. And James is using this. He's like, that's who we're worshiping, guys. I don't know if you guys saw in Detroit this past week. I blame Daniel, this is where Daniel's from. Um, in Detroit this past week, they unveiled a satanic statue. Um, Baphomet. Um, anyone see that? Anyone hear about that? Okay, yeah. So I didn't actually want to post the picture on here, so I'm just, <laughs> just going to describe it. So it's, just, it's a huge statue. I don't know, 10, 12 feet tall. And uh, it's this figure sitting on a throne, and uh, it's a human body with a goat's head. So, goat's head with a little kind of shaggy mane, human body. Um, there's two kids sitting at the base of the throne, uh, you know, six, seven year old kids, a boy and a girl staring up at the goat. The goat has a pentagram that's upside down on his forehead, which is a satanic symbol. Um, and, uh, he has hands like this two fingers up, two fingers down. And it's made of like, I don't know, it's gray. So, some sort of metal, iron, I don't know. And they unveiled it in Detroit, and their goal is to take it to Oklahoma City in the states and put it next to the courthouse where the Ten Commandments are displayed, this government building, and so that they can have both of those next to each other. And as Christians, as a Christian, if you're a Christian here this morning, you might think, oh, that's crazy, that's, that's a freaky statue, all that. But actually, if you just look at the statue, it's not. there's nothing really scary about it. And they, it's it's intentional. Um, like most times when we think of things satanic, we're like, he's like resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Most times when we think of things satanic, we think of um, you know pointy ears, red cape, pointy tail. Like that's not the devil, right? We think of uh, you know if the, if the saints were going to erect a statue, they should do it of like. Blood and death and orgies and, I don't know, all this stuff. But it's actually... So a statue has a torch coming from its head. represents the pursuit of knowledge. It has two fingers up, two fingers down, saying that I'm reconciling what's above and below. It um, has the children there to represent innocence and them seeking out truth. The statue is supposed to represent freedom of religion and freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Uh, the quote from the leader of this organization says it's supposed to, it represents compassion and integrity and um, it's supposed to give human inspiration. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, that he doesn't work... So blatant, sometimes, where you're like, "Oh, that's that's the devil." I need that out of my life. He actually masquerades as an angel of light, and we see the statue, and it's supposed to represent all these things, and they all they're all good things, right? Compassion, right? Like that's that's great. Um, But what we don't realize is the statue also represents the combining of. um, It takes away distinction. The combining of heaven and hell, the combining of male and female, the combining of, because um, the statue's a hermaphrodite, the combining of, um, you know, all these contrasts, and what it does is it's, it takes away what the Bible has made distinct, and, um, and it just twists it, just a little bit, just a little bit, it twists it, and people are following the statue everywhere, I mean, they had, to, they had to issue tickets for it. They had, I mean, it's, it's crazy how many people are following this statue. And that's how Satan works in our lives. That's how the devil works. He masquerades as this angel of light, and we think, oh, there's no big deal. That's not a big deal. And we just follow it. We purchase the ticket, and we wait in line, and we go see it, we pay homage, and now that's part of our lives. And so, life of worship reveals those things to us. It reveals what we need to purify, what we need to cleanse, what we need to wash off our hands. And the closer we are to the world, the further we are from God. The closer we are to God, the further we are from how the world is is trying to contaminate us. And James is saying, wake up, guys. And then what's beautiful is in the next verse, he starts calling them brothers again. And he says, brothers, let's treat each other like neighbors. This is the royal law. Let's stop judging each other and start just loving each other in Christ. And so James isn't preaching this message of condemnation. He's actually preaching this message of love. Like, we need to show the world that we love each other and what that means. And that we love them. And we don't condemn the world. And, you know, I've been talking a lot about sin this morning. If you are are a Christian, you understand what I'm talking about. If you're a Christian and you're offended... You understand what I'm talking about. Um, If you are not a Christian here this morning, like most of the scriptures are actually, when when James talks about these things, when Jesus, when Paul, uh, when the prophets in the Old Testament talk about these things, they're actually talking to us as Christians. They're actually talking to the people who should know better, the people of God. And so, if you're if if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus this morning. Know that there's no condemnation um, in terms of uh, us judging you. Um, The Bible says you've actually been condemned already. You're just born into it. And all the gospel offers is a life of restoration, a life of uh, freedom, a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of hope.